mind blown for most moderns. Everything was fragmented and disconnected and disjointed. You know, we'd, we'd love for people to scream for, scream at us on the comments section. That would be, uh, that'd be a rich man's problem. That would be a real ch- that'd yeah. be a nice problem but to I have. Do, think, who do, you, do you know who really you are? Have you done a deep dive into the into the deep recesses of who you are? Uh, Again, it's too scary. <laughs> so what are the most dangerous stories that we're telling as leaders and organizations right now? Ooh. <laughs> most dangerous stories we are telling yeah um no this is a good opening to the sense and signal podcast um no uh i think the most dangerous <laughs> stories that we're telling right now are the ones that we are least acknowledging and there's really only five basic stories that we tell and we kind of cycle through them and we mash them together and we combine them um, and we throw them up in the air and we try to make meaning out of those stories um, but probably the most dangerous one these days is the stranger in the strange land story. Uh, think uh, the movie Shawshank Redemption. Um, we're, we're, we're telling ourselves a story that we are um, disassociated from, <clears throat> from meaning, uh, disassociated from nature, disassociated even um, as leaders from our followers, even as followers from our organizations. And that becomes incredibly dangerous because identity, when it is unmoored from its roots, merely floats and that's not good hmm. at least that's my take uh i think that uh that hannah might have a different uh, might have may have a different thought or maybe she has an additional thought on that well i do agree that i think that the 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 stories we don't acknowledge and or we don't even recognize as stories are probably the ones that have the deepest impact and um they kind of dwell in the subconscious um i would say that the loss of meaning universally as at this moment is really what i would say is the most important story right now and we can i would love to deep sort of dive deeper into this idea of you know what is storytelling and what we what we um, what narratives we are constructing all the time and why it's important, but also why it's damaging at times. But I think the loss of meaning, something that you mentioned is to me uh, deeply personal and yet it also resonates on a, on a global scale, right? It's that mm-hmm. uh, time kind of um, of of huge upheaval and we can all sense it. It's bubbling. It's this, it's this shared feeling of what is this? Um, I, I sometimes think people when the Rome was falling, you know, were experiencing this also, and maybe Mm -hmm. like Germany, 1931, you know, 33, where like it's, it's starting to crack. We're seeing the cracks. We don't have stories to make around this. We don't have the narrative to capture what's happening, yet we are sensing it. And I think deeply psychologically as a, as a, as a group psyche, but also individually, we struggle with it. And I think that's, that, that would be my, my answer to the what's the one big story i think the loss of meaning to me is the biggest story right now which is kind of like the loss of story yeah exactly i hear two things actually one two things there is the i heard from hassan there are there's a specific story that is a disconnect and i think honey you're you're also referring to a disconnect from the lack of pure story and perhaps there's it's not just any kind of story that we want to talk about but maybe we should just start trying to figure out what it means to reintroduce stories um, that are meaningful into the culture. And you started to touch on something, Hannah, um, before we go too deep into this. What happens organizationally or socially if we don't get this right or correct this shipped? Is that everybody? Mm-hmm. I think I think Hannah uh, leaned in on it um, uh, in, uh, in referencing... Um, in referencing Germany, um, you know, in a, in a sort of pre-war period, uh, I, 
I think. Well, I'm going to I'm going to pull from Dostoevsky a little bit here. <laughs> I'm going to go back to, to to the Russians a little bit because they have some experience with the loss of story and then what happens after that. Um, you know, you kind mm. of fall into chaos. We're not kind of. You fall into chaos. Um, you fall into destruction. Um, you fall into uh, disintegration. I mean, literally, you disintegrate. Right. Um, regardless of what you may believe about people struggling with atomized identity around gender and, and, uh, and sexual, uh, sexual preference, right. Um, or sexual behavior, regardless of what you may think about that in a, in a moral or maybe even an ethical sense, or even a philosophical sense, you cannot deny that that is a signal, um, through the noise of spiritual disintegration and, we are we've we've already seen this in several areas in uh, in an American context and in, in, in a broader Western culture context, in um, in real material ways where people are struggling to bring children into the world, where people are struggling to um, find definitions for even getting out of bed in the morning, <laughs> uh, or putting their or or, or or finding reasons to pursue work. Uh, that is meaningful. Um, yeah, and there's a whole mental health aspect to correct. it as well, right? There's we have a mental health crisis happening in the world That's today right. as well, well, at least in the Western. That's right. That's world. right. And so yeah. that is all part of that disintegration. Literally, the integration is 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 falling apart, and you will fall into chaos. And by the way, um, you know Nietzsche called this uh, back in the uh, 1870s and 1880s. And while I'm no fan of Nietzsche, I've been very clear on that in my, on my own podcast. Um, I think he played a really clever game of two lies and a truth. And we can talk about that a little bit later, but I think the truth that he understood was that when you have a loss of meaning, then disintegration follows. What drove him crazy was he couldn't figure out how to reintegrate that thing. And I think that's a real challenge for Western man right now. Hannah, what is storytelling? I mean, why, and why is storytelling important? Because we, unlike other mammals, we have this ability to think forward and, and make meaning. And our ability to make meaning is, has developed over millennia to have an evolutionary, you know, it, it has evolutionary um, uh, purpose. We we need to make meaning of of sort of we can make meaning of the changing seasons and use it for agriculture. We can figure out how animals are migrating and when we can fight, you know, hunt them easier. Um, we you know we we know these things and we have. Um, learned how to navigate and and the stories we tell are helping us be in the world and it's not a small thing right like we all need to have a story that helps us that anchors us in this world now that's all great and wonderful and we need stories that the narratives that help us survive. So just, you know, think about how at one point um, when the bronze age ended, um, there was like a, like a serious famine and there was like a, um, like a cold age, mini cold age, uh, mini ice age. And, and a lot of people died, right? Like the population of the world apparently went to like, 15, 20% of what it was before, something staggering. And at that point, the humanity came up with this idea of solving this uh, huge problem. Like, look, everybody's dying. That's a problem. How do we solve it? By social, um, so like we came up with a social solution, right? We came up with living in communities that are larger than just the, the smallest tribe. Now, when you think about it and you look at how we live with complete strangers and in cities, 
and we rely on work of complete strangers. How did we get here? Well, by by developing these stories and and ideas that led us to overcome fear, right? And and it's it's both in um, it demonstrates or like it demonstrates itself in in a lot of things from hey, we can, we can meet each other and just nod and do something like I'm friendly and animals do that too. But then we can also right. have other things, how to, how to live together. Um, and so for all those reasons, the narrative and stories are important. It, it helps us, they help us not to be afraid, deadly afraid, right? When, when the storm comes, you're not going to die because that's, that's the Zeus, you know? that's that's Zeus and or that's the wrath of the god or you know whoever your god is and then the other store and and you can talk about um science but i mean when i when i hear that though one thing that comes to mind is something you said on the previous podcast hannah and i, I want to get his son's take on this and joda's take on it as well like you had said we're terrible storytellers at times because our senses it's difficult for us to really make sense of the world, right? Like we're constantly inputting bad data, which puts out bad stories. Like, oh, there's this guy on a on a Mount Olympus throwing down thunderbolts, and you know, um, which is you know a great binding binding agent for that Greek culture, but really, it's not true, right? It's not really getting to the core of reality, right? And so, on one hand, it's helpful because it helps us sort of make sense. And at the same time, most of our, the stories are not helpful, right? They're, they're helping you anchor yourself. But so often we get in this spiral of telling ourselves stories and, and it can be, you know, I'm going to bring it back to nowadays and give you a very specific example. I was talking to um, somebody who um, is a workaholic and they are uh, basically convinced that that's what they have, like the story in their head is I have to work, you know, 50, 60 hours a, a week. I have to get up um, at 6 a.m. to go to gym. And and I'm like, so you do not see your wife and you do not see your children until the very end of the day. And then you're, you know, it's like, so the story you're telling yourself about this is what, this is my mission. This is what I have to do is very different from what like Byron Katie comes to mind where you go, or, you know, for, um, for that matter, um, the Stoics who I think it was Zeno who would say, but is this true? Right. They both say the same thing. Um, is this true? Are you really saving your, your life and your wife by, you know, working 50, 60 hours a week, or is it really that you're trying to avoid being together? Like, are you avoiding closeness? Are you avoiding some em emotional connection or whatever that could be? So <clears throat> I'm going to stop. Makes me wonder if therapy's <laughs> it makes me wonder if therapy is really there to help us reconstruct <laughs> new stories. <laughs> it doesn't make me wonder at all. I think that's what its purpose is. So, hey, so I'm listening to all that. Um, where does, how does, uh, how would you? How what's your reaction to this 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 conversation in relationship to literature? Um, is there bad literature to read uh, to, to to that you shouldn't be reading? That would say, and I don't mean pulp, although I love pulp. Uh, but is there stuff that can be antithetical? And, and maybe that's an opinion. But is there a dark side in that respect? Yes, there is a dark side to literature. Um, I would be I would be mistaken <laughs> if I did not uh, if I did not confirm that. <laughs> Um, and we've all read, uh, let, let me frame it broadly. We've all read bad literature, right? Um, I'm not talking about pulp novels. I'm a huge fan of comic books, or at least I was until some of them went off the rails 20 years ago. Um, you know, so I've had my fair share of junk food when it comes to literature, right? Um, I'm also, mm -hmm. uh, into cinema. I've watched my fair share of bad movies, you know, things I shouldn't have watched, uh, things I look back on later on, I'm like, that was for a very specific time, and that doesn't really apply now. And the reason why is because the stories that we tell ourselves in literature, and we already referenced, uh, obliquely referenced the Greek gods, um, and, and I want to I want to go into the Hebraic religion, uh, you know, uh, of Judaism, um, and then from that Christianity, which in essence killed all the gods, if you 
want to look at it that way um, and replaced it with uh, with with Jesus. Right. Um, you know, if, if we're looking at the nature of of sort of the literature that's wrapped around those stories. Right. And the literary tropes we use to uh, to to push those stories. Can there be bad literature that gives us bad stories? Absolutely. For sure. Um, your mileage will vary on this. So if you're a person who really likes, I don't know, Andrew Vax crime novels, I'm just going to pick on that guy. And he's a great writer, by the way. I've read Andrew Vax. Great writer. But I would not say that there's anything redeeming for leaders inside of an Andrew Vax novel because he's writing about a very specific type of pathology in a very specific kind of way to be entertaining, right? That's mm -hmm. probably not literature you're going to get anything meaningful from um, as a story. Uh, it's probably not literature that's going to answer the question that Pontius Pilate asked Jesus, uh, what is truth? Truly great question, by the way. Truly spectacular question. Um, and I think that modern men and women, modern humans uh, in our postmodern time, struggle with this idea that there could be many truths that create one reality. We, we struggle with this idea because we're looking for the one epistemic truth or the one epistemic answer. And the problem is we've created all of these boxes of places where, not boxes of places, boxes where meaning can exist. So uh, you see this most notably, this is a big example, when religious people argue with scientists about creation right? So the creation narrative is a story. It is a story. It says something deeper about the meaning behind humanity and the meaning behind creation. But is it a story of 13.9 billion years? I had somebody get that get after me about this on Twitter. And I, I was like, eh, okay, is it really a story about 13.9 billion years? No, because it's a different kind of truth. The scientific truth exists in this box and the religious truth exists in this box. And by the way, both of them could be true at the same time. Mind blown for most moderns. You can actually walk and chew gum at the same time. Like it's okay. You're not going to fly apart at the seams. But what we are looking for is the one answer or the one thing. And um, we're not going to get it this side. Of, we're not going to get it on this side of uh, reality anyway. And... Yeah, it it makes me yeah. think of the movie Rashomon, or uh, you know, you yep. where it's you know, uh, and I don't even remember what the I don't think that the the ghost was the ghost the one that supposedly had the ultimate reality. I can't remember if the I author, think the ghost was just another perspective. I think was all it just the realities. Perspective? Yeah, this okay, okay. So there was no intent to suggest there is an ultimate reality. So in, no, in I think the whole case. point of Rashomon is that is the multiplicity of realities. Well, you're seeing this in the Marvel yeah. movies now you know, with Thanos. Thanos wanted to create one reality, snap my fingers and boom, it's done. That is the ultimate sort of arrogant postmodern idea wrapped up in a superhero movie. Like I can't think of anything more arrogant than that. Yeah. I'm going to snap my fingers because I've decided. Boom, done. And... We tried to take that and turn that into a heroic trope with Tony Stark at the end of that end of that movie, but it didn't work. And the reason it doesn't work is because right. hey, you can't snap your fingers and just wipe off a third of the people out of the galaxy. <laughs> I also thought it was a limited oh. imagination because couldn't you just like double the size of the universe? <laughs> that's Anyways, that's a different thing. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's another I thing. <laughs> thing for another day. I don't. Getting back, I'm going to ask you the Pontius Pilate question, Hannah. Um, what? What is the relationship between truth and storytelling, and why is that important to when you're thinking about leadership and organizational leadership? I'm, are I'm are the stories we tell in organizations true? <laughs> sometimes, and sometimes they're not. And I will argue that most people do sense when there is a disconnect. And um, not necessarily, you know, this is the hill I'm going to die on and willingly the, you know, most people don't think their way into being better or feeling better or understanding the world. And as much as I love books and as much as I love literature and, and I want to, you know, live in my prefrontal cortex forever, that's actually not a good idea. And most of the information we're getting is, is through 
the way our body processes it or how we, mm-hmm. uh, we don't have, we don't have the capacity, uh, you know, for logic and, and language for a lot of information that we're actually getting. So that's why I'm a big proponent of embodiment and kind of looking at um, art as a way to see, okay, what resonates with you? Um, well, it doesn't, you know, and can you talk a, a little bit more about what embodiment means? Cause maybe the listeners aren't, uh, aren't, aren't going to grok that. Okay. Do you str- so, a stranger to strange land, uh, term. <laughs> so I'll give you a very specific example. You have a, you have a teenager or you remember when you were a teenager and the only thing where, where the only place where you felt somewhat whole everything was fragmented and disconnected and disjointed. And, you know, your body was weird and the people around you were weird and the parents were no longer heroes and everything is a mess and what's happening. And the only place where where you feel calm is when you have a death metal band, you know, way up in your room and you're banging your hand head and you're just like in that moment, you have no words for that. But your body is relaxing. Why? Because it 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 seeks that sense. Like this is you approaching reality. There is an like it can make sense. I don't have words for it, but it may it can you know somebody hears my frustration. Somebody can put it in music. Somebody can put it in a dance. Like I can put it in dance, and. To me, embodiment is all about understanding that a lot of your um, a lot of your intelligence is in your body on a cellular mm. level, and we, I blame Saint Augustine, I blame Thomas Aquinas for that complete mm-hmm. disconnect of you know the the yeah. two worlds, the sort of the the spiritual what? and the natural. And I, th- I think you're l- 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 letting Descartes off too, right? I, you know, <laughs> all of them, all of them. And um, there's this disconnect. And again, we're disregarding, and the Western culture is really terrible at this. We're, we have been disregarding how we feel, how we sense. And you know this, right? You, you meet a person and there's a great energy about them. And your body senses it, even though what they're saying it's, it's not even making that much sense, but you're like, I like them. That yeah, me. there's. I have uh, um, in my profession, I do these things called um, alignment workshops, and it, you know, some people would say that they're meant to get everybody to agree, and I always lead in. No one needs to walk out of an agreement. There's not. This is not about agreement. This is about everybody understanding where everybody's coming from. Because agreement will come later. And in fact, we might finish this project and you two might never agree. But the one thing you'll have to agree on is making a decision how to move forward. But if you can kind of understand each other, where each other come from, hearing each other's stories, because that's what the alignment shops are for, is getting alignment on the story understanding, not necessarily agreement. I think that's a big factor of us kind of understanding what it means to hear each other. It's like, doesn't necessarily mean that we have to... uh, uh, agree it's that we're developing i think that's the word we use pretty regularly and this is starting to come in my head i'm hearing you talk hana is empathy we're trying to generate and connect with empathy um and so uh, these tools come uh, this, it's, this, this is a big tool for me i use quite often especially when but i want to be projects. clear on this i want to jump in a little bit on this as a conflict management guy who led negotiation workshops and has taught conflict management and all that kind of good stuff uh back in the day um we struggle in the West, and, and Hannah hit on something here that I think is very important with Augustine and Aquinas, and then we're getting into Descartes there a little bit. Um, the West has struggled with the body since the beginning. So this is not a new struggle, right? Um, ever since the apostles in the Bible, the biblical narrative in the New Testament stared slack-jawed at Jesus going up body into the into the heavens, as it says at the end of at the end of what is it? Uh, I think it's Matthew. They are all just stared up at the sky, and then an angel comes down and goes, Why are you staring at the sky? Get out of here. 
Um, if you look at the entire biblical narrative, it is a struggle between, again, the Judaic understanding of the Bible or not the Bible, the body being in the world and the Greek understanding that's in the New Testament of this coolly rational thing that's just going to kind of come along. And you get a lot of that in the Pauline Gospels as well, or the Pauline writings as well, the letters and the encyclical pieces and all that. So it's in our, even in our root documents, this struggle is in. So I absolutely, late at the feet of Augustine, late at the feet of Aquinas, Descartes, let's give him a punch in the mouth too, <laughs> while we're going by, <laughs> while we're going by. But just understand that we come by it honestly. And that is a very Western thing. And the thing is though, our philosophies have an Eastern touch to them. And the Eastern touch cares about the body. And so again, can two truths be equally correct, equally valid? Yes, they can. Can they can and can both those come together and create reality? Yes, they can. Now, for all of my religious listeners, all your religious listeners out there who are going to be screaming about Gnosticism at you, <laughs> I'm not going down the road of Gnosticism. I want to be very clear. You know, we'd we'd love for people to scream for, scream at us on the comments section. That would be, uh, that'd be a rich man's problem. That'd be a real that'd yeah. be a nice problem. But to I have. do think, yeah. hate, hate us, more, hate us more, please. Let us but, hear about um, it. But I do think that we are going to hit the pinnacle of this embodiment problem. And I don't know if Hannah agrees or not, based upon what she's seeing. But I'm seeing. I'm thinking we're going to hit the embody the the, the pinnacle of the embodiment problem with um, artificial intelligence. We're going to hit the pinnacle of that problem. Oh man, you just did and a virtual reality. Buzz, buzzword drop. I like it. We can put that in All our right. in our tag now. AI, perfect. You're, you're welcome. Yeah. Chat, chat GPT <laughs> for the <laughs> algorithm out there. We should, we should combine it with my question: What is human? Um, and then you know we can we can complete we can complete we that complete circle. the loop the cycle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I, I want to go back to um, the original question, if I remember it correctly, that Dan was asking, which is sort of some of the stories that we tell ourselves and what's the what's the danger and what what is the benefit. And since we have Hassan here, I want to go um, sort of a literary route and and bring this um, this example of. Um, Albert Camus, uh, when when he wrote mm. *The Fall*, remember it's a mm -hmm. it's a um, so this Parisian lawyer is in Amsterdam and um, he Jean Baptiste mm -hmm. Clemence yeah. was his name, and and he walks kind of inebriated, I think, home from somewhere a bar, and hears a voice. It sounds like a woman falling in the water or falling somewhere. And, and there's that split second, uh, where he's like, well, somebody else is going to help her, blah, blah, blah. And he walks on. Right. And the, the, why is it important? Because he has been telling himself, I'm this kind of person, right? I'm the person yeah. who is educated, who is helpful, who is blah, blah, blah. And then from that moment on, he's faced with, oh, crap, in reality, when it comes to action, I am a very bad person. And the struggle, you know, and of course, Sartre and, and, and Camus and all of them, you know, I'm, I'm not a big fan. Um, I like the books for a certain reason, but also like this is just the nihilism is is. Um, not a good, uh, not a good way, but it's a, it's a, to be, because it basically says there is no meaning. There is no, you know, and, and to me, rejection is what some people will do. It, it kind of started this, this wave and it, we're in it, right? Some people do reject completely that there is a meaning. There is no God. There is no meaning. There is no, like, it's just day to day. And but doesn't Sartre, isn't his thesis in existentialism as a humanism that in the absence of a God and in the absence of meaning, that it's incumbent upon the person to construct their own meaning? Like we have more agency in creating our narrative? And, as, and as, to your point, Hannah, also the agency to create a false narrative about ourselves <laughs> that we don't live up to. Well, right. Were you were you were you stating that that would that 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 was of your that was your 
your thought, what you just said about no meaning. Um, no, I'm saying that yeah, I think that yeah. it, it essentially since the industrial revolution and probably, um, you know, uh, again, go back to Descartes and the, the, the death of the gods really, um, and religion, there is this, this sort of, we are on this wave of, well, what is the point, right? Like, and, and some right. people say, like the existentialists, like we, we are our, we have the agency and we have the power to create our own meanings, right? And, and some people say no. And, and I think that what's, what's interesting in this context is to say the storytelling could be also very misleading, be and maybe mm -hmm. we don't make stories and and make ourselves a lot of people who meditate and who go um, sort of this um, route of it. It's not that it doesn't matter, but your your interpretation doesn't matter, right? Like you're here now. Your interpretation is about yesterday and it's about tomorrow, but you don't have that. That's gone, and that's that's that didn't happen yet. So all you have is right now, and you don't need a story for right now. All you need to do is to be right. So there's also, a, so you have several schools that are currently like we have this confluence of all these, and they're kind of battling it out, mm -hmm. not necessarily in the open, and not everybody acknowledges that this is happening, but I believe that it is, mm -hmm. and and. And I would I would agree with Hassan that we have it the the, the power it's the power of yes and right it's the mm -hmm. it's not either or it's yes this is true and mm -hmm. this is also true. Hey, Hassan, I saw you almost <laughs> bite your thumb about 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 two, a minute ago. What 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 was so your, I, what I, you thinking? I, I'm taking notes as Hannah is talking because she's she's just she's throwing down just like stuff it's amazing she's throwing down she's throwing down uh yeah you want to be in my classroom sometimes the students are like this. <laughs> she's she's throwing lasers she's she's chalking arrows at people it's good um i love it i love it I like um i will start off with with my thought this way i care very much about what happens in all of your house in the in what I'm about to say. So I mean, literally the house you live in, I care about what happens in your house, Joda. I care about what happens in your house, uh, Dan. I care about what happens in your house, Hannah. I know it's scary. it's scary how much I care about what happens in your house. And I've had a I've had a I've had a come to I've come to the realization over the course of I would say the last year how flat the modern idea of we're just atomized beings walking around really is because what that does is it lets us off the hook and it lets us off the hook into hedonism yep. or a weird form of, of asceticism that comes out as stoicism and if i don't care about what happens in your house then i'm letting myself off the hook for socially negotiating with you about reality right then i don't have to socially negotiate with you about reality yeah your reality is just as cool as my reality and by the way take that to the logical conclusion Who's to say that if you murder somebody in your house, I should have a problem with it? Uh, yeah, come to Portland. I think. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I think that's probably the stance in Portland. <laughs> <laughs> and so, I've become really convicted on this at a at a at a at a moral level, and even down down deeper at a spiritual level, that I have to care about what happens in your house. Now. Where does that responsibility end? Which is what modern man would ask. Where, how far does that go? Where does that responsibility end? Well, we'll see. Um, I'm not at the end of my thought process on that, but I do know that in the existential mode of storytelling, and and I and I, you know, read my fair share of Camus as well. Um, you know, yeah, okay, you have agency to create your own narrative, but are you going to? And the answer that I would I would question Camus that in, in that way. I would question Sartre in that way. And by the mm -hmm. way, if they were being intellectually honest and appropriately French, they would say, no, no, you're not going to create your own narrative. Instead, you're going to engage in, like I said, either hedonism or some weird form of asceticism. You're not going to create meaning out of that. And so G.K. Chesterton, um, 
has been t- go ahead yeah wait, wait, real, uh, hey son yeah. real quick so i understand what your, yeah. your position what you're saying you're saying typically the human condition suggests you will not typically. be creating meaning that you're going to succumb to which i th- i think are qualifying is probably well i'm gonna qualify as like these two weaknesses sure. that yeah. you brought up basically yeah yeah and okay. by the way um i want to be very clear on this there are people who claim to have a story but when you watch their behavior they're not behaving in a way that matches their story uh, so I see this. Well, yeah, that's what Huddle <laughs> that's was right. speaking toward, right? I think it's typical, right. actually, right? I mean, we all have a narrative we told ourselves that we think that's we right. are and we how much we align that's right. is. Well, that's part of our problem with storytelling is it's not just that we can't understand. We don't have the capacity to really interpret reality, the outside world. We have a hard time understanding ourselves, right. too. And <laughs> most of ourselves that's is right. invisible yeah. to us. Who are you? Who do you? Do you know who really you are? Have you done a deep dive into the into the deep? recesses of who you are uh again it's too scary (laughs) wasn't that kind of why oracle said plato was or was it plato that was the smartest or socrates uh, socrates was the smartest because i mean basically because he was suggesting that he kind of actually know himself to know correct and so engaging in that process of knowing yourself and here's the thing not engaging in never-ending navel gazing but moving that knowledge out of plato's cave (laughs) into the light of reality and then here's the hard part after you do that making your behavior align with your story and being strict on that is hugely important so i care about what happens in your house i also care about you living out the courage of your convictions to whatever end that may be um and i would say that probably the person who i who i saw publicly anyway probably lived that out the the cleanest was Christopher Hitchens, interestingly enough. Um, you know, he was an atheist all the way to the moment of he was he was a David a David Hume really level was. atheist all the way to the end. I mean, when he was dying of cancer, and religious people would walk up to him and say, "I am praying for you," he would say, "Thank you, but I'm not going anywhere." Who says that? Only a person who is living out their convictions all the way to the end. So I will push back a little bit. So we will definitely need to have a conversation. I sense a little bit of um, uh, of you putting down my beloved Stoics, and and I take umbrage. I take umbrage with that, but uh, that's, okay. that's a different story. That's right. I um, I'm a huge no. That's good. We can touch on that a little bit. What, what defend the Stoics, Hannah? I love the Stoics too. But, but I, I, I would lose, hold on. So I also want to say yes to Christopher Hitchens, the problem, um, huge fan, beautiful writer. But I think that, see, what you're saying is, is both beautiful and freaking dangerous, right? Like living your convictions, because we all have these narratives that we mm-hmm. tell ourselves. So, and you know, you can go to the, 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 tr- you did, um, uh, conflict oh, resolutions. Yeah. So, you know, all about the victim perpetrator mm-hmm. rescue oh, yeah. or triangle, right. And we are all, if you feel that you are the, um, mm-hmm. the rescuer all the time and you live out your convictions, you might be the, you know, the crusader, you might be the, you know, like the Spanish inquisitor. You might be whatever it is that you are so damn certain that you're doing the right thing. And that's what needs to happen. There's so many people who actually, you know, might be committing a lot of harm on others because yep. they're so convic- convinced that they are following in on that righteous path. And 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 that's where the storytelling is tricky, right? And we can take it from the literary wor- world to and from history to right now. You have, you know, CEOs who are firing people because they're convinced that they absolutely have to save the company. It's the company that needs to be saved and these people have to go. And or you can you can look at opposite uh, example and again, it's aligned with what I truly believe. Most people believe they are good people. And all the atrocities and bad things that they're committing, 
They do because they believe they're the right thing to do. Very few people go, you know what? I just want to be a scumbag or, oh, I just want to, you know, commit harm. Like, no, yes, you're a psychopath next, but it, most people are not. <laughs> I give you, I can give you a very specific example of somebody who, a, who's a, who's a, a top of her institution and she came up through um, the, uh, the ranks of uh, student services. So in academia, we have the, the teachers on one end and then you have the student services on the other. And for a long time, there's this push to, you know, like protect. And again, like there's a lot that you need to do when, when you are heading a, a, a university or whatever you're heading. And, um, you know, for years, there needs to be decisions to, to cut certain positions. And if you feel like these are my people, these are my people, it's my family, I have to protect them. Well, okay. What happens to the students who are then not getting the the right education, or you know, who don't have like the institution doesn't have money to hire enough like better faculty or or reward the faculty that they already have? Like what? That's that's what I'm talking about. Like stories that might be harmful. So often, come from a very good place. That's what mm, like yeah. the storytelling. Well, road road is, to hell is covered with good intentions. I mean, I literally just listened to an Alan Watts uh, talk about virtue signaling, essentially you know, the the good intentions, and he and he even suggests like your intention, your good intentions can be hurting you too. You know, so of course, and and the stories we. So I I will say you know way way back to the original question, like the storytelling is important because it gives us meaning. And it helps us to see ourselves and, and on that, you know, in certain light that usually is, is actually helpful, even though sometimes it is not. But another example, a story that I would bring up is I was just rereading uh, Dear Sugar, Cheryl Strait uh, book, uh, which she wrote um, Wild, the, the book that was later made into a movie. Um, she's a, a beautiful beautiful writer. And, um, for years she had this, this column and people would write her and she does not, you know, it's not like advice column, like any other. And, and at one point, you know, she had somebody who, a woman who's uh, deeply depressed, completely, um, you know, basically giving up on her life because she lost her daughter and, and Cheryl Strait, you know, says, just beautifully, um, you are currently on a planet, you know, everybody else is on planet earth and you're on planet. I lost my daughter. And it's a, <laughs> it's a place that nobody, it's just, again, like the, the writing is just, um, great phrasing, beautiful. But what I'm saying is you can find people who have lost their children. <clears throat> the absolute worst thing that can ever happen to a parent, right? Like it's, it doesn't get worse than that. Who got over that? There are people who got over their um, their addictions, their losses, their trauma, and they they were able to create a story for themselves that helps them move on. That's a huge power of storytelling. And you have people who have that trauma, and it's central to their story, who never get out of it because they will always maintain that you know, like they are anchored to that, and it's the only thing sort of, you know, one, the core thing that's defining them for, for years to come and they never get out. And what I'm saying is the power, the beauty of storytelling that helps you get over terrible uh, abuse or addiction or, you know, loss, it's the meaning that good storytelling can give you is tectonic it's beautiful and it's powerful and yes and the storytelling that we sometimes tell ourselves is also very damaging and it can be bad and even though it comes from a good place it's horrible and you're probably going to harm a lot of people and and that's 
That's the yeah. problem with storytelling. Hey, son, I want to give you a chance to respond to that. There's a lot there. But also when you're done, I'd like to see yeah. about if we can maybe pivot a little bit and start pulling it back to the organization yeah. leader mm-hmm. and see what all this mm-hmm. kind of means from a, from a sense-making perspective. Anyways, mm-hmm. go ahead. No, no, absolutely. Respond, please. Um, a couple of thoughts occur to me. Um, I think we have to separate, and this, this leads into um, <clears throat> this idea of what does this mean for leaders? I think we have to separate the individual story from the corporate story, right? And by corporate, I just mean the group, right? So you, you're going to get a corporate story in a family. A family is going to be a corporation, right? Um, and I'm talking about the organization, organization. right? The organization, exactly. story. the organization story, right? You got to separate out those two stories, right? And so I agree with Hana in in the fact that um, the the individual can drive as a leader that corporate story. Um, and that, and we've, by the way, we've seen multiple evidence of that. Uh, you know, all you have to do is go look at your LinkedIn feed on your desktop on the left hand, on the right hand side, and you'll just see all these kinds of people doing all this kinds of stuff, driving all kinds of different stories. So I don't have to, I don't have to belabor that. I think that's, that's, that's absolutely evident. Where I would push back on Hana a little bit here is that I think that I would rather live in a world, in a West where, People are driven by the power of conviction that they have developed, not in a reactive mode, but in a responsive mode from the deepest part of their inner mind all the way to the outer limits of their their reality that they can push out to. <laughs> and I'm, I'm paraphrasing from that old show, Outer Limits. And I, and I think that we have to distinguish <laughs> between mindless conviction um, and mindful conviction. So mindful conviction is the type of conviction that um, the woman who started Mothers Against Drunk Driving after her daughter was killed Mm -hmm. in a drunk driving accident, right? Um, That's mindful conviction. That's a woman who took her trauma, her story, and her organization that she founded and eventually left a couple of years later um, in the 80s has saved countless numbers of lives. That's mindful conviction. Um, Mindless conviction is Lady Macbeth in Shakespeare. <laughs> That's mindless conviction. Uh, a person who was pushing her husband, ambition, ambition for ambition's, for ambition's sake, sake, you know, that kind of that kind of mindless conviction. And so I think we have to distinguish between those two things. I also believe that um, we have to really wonder, well, no, there's a great line in Joan Didion's Play It As It Lays, which we just recently covered on the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast. That's my, uh, <laughs> that's the plug there. It adds the plug in the show. Your plug. <laughs> clever, clever with that. We'll add a link to this episode. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and if you look at our channels, so we have a link to the Hassan's channel on our um, channel. And um, and there's a great, the great opening line in Play It As It Lays. And I love Joan Didion for a variety of reasons. She's the ultimate sort of anti-Virginia Woolf, anti-Jane Austen kind of writer. I love her for that. Um but the very first line that Maria Wyeth, oh yeah, the very first line that Maria Wyeth says is, people wonder what makes Iago, people ask what makes Iago evil. I don't ask that anymore. And that's a hugely compelling thought to open up with. Iago, of course, is from Othello. He's driving the, um, he's the villain that drives the narrative. And there's no sense to Iago that he has anything underneath him at all, other than just naked ambition. That's it. That's the only thing you could pull from that. Um, Iago was probably the first real existentialist, <laughs> uh, or or very or maybe chaotic evil um, in um, in 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 world in uh, in Western literature. Dungeons yeah, and Dragons, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, from those areas of the power of conviction, um, from getting meaning from a trauma based story, I, I think we can come to the conclusion that it is better to encourage leaders in in particular to really go inside and discover what their convictions are and what their story is and then to to begin to walk that out in some kind of meaningful way with caveats and here are a few of the caveats here are a few of the boundaries i would say um you've got to recognize that you're going to show up as a villain in somebody else's story but you're also going to show up as a hero. Oh, yeah. Especially in a leadership position. And, and you also have to be willing to care about that other person's story. And too often I see so many leaders who are unwilling to care about what that other person's story is. Because it's not convenient 
or it takes mm. too long to hear, or they don't have the kind of time, or any of these other, to paraphrase again from Seinfeld, any of these yada, yada, yada excuses that just don't matter. They're just excuse making, right? And I think that we are at a moment where leadership has to really focus on taking action and not making any more excuses. Uh, no more excuses. So I want to, I, I, I got a, maybe something that will kind of start, help, help us pivot and start to pull some of this together. You know, when I think about meaning making and storytelling, and, and especially from a leadership perspective, it's meaning making is about purpose making, right? Like what was the, what was the purpose? Why did this thing happen? You know, how can I make sense of what's happening to me at this particular moment? And what is my purpose? Well, you can take it to the more to, to the more existential, like in life, you know, or what is my purpose within the organization? And is it is it the job of the leader to help construct stories that help people figure out or understand what their purpose is within the organization and and the and why it's meaningful? Um, yeah. Let me let me add one more thing to that as well, kind of riffing off of what we just said. So there are narratives that we tell ourselves and we are a species of rationalists. We rationalize the information against the narrative we have. And then there are stories that are being told to us. And the question is, is while I'm in my organization, a leader or something, I, I am trying to make meaning, but I've also got this narrative that I've told myself that, that, that is, that is lensing my question. Like that meaning has to be, is referenced against what I think is meaningful. Right. So it's my my narration. How much does a leader or the organization, how much pull or pull should it have to influence my internal narrative? Or is it merely about trying to align, um, finding, making sure I'm a, we're aligned um, naturally? And if not, see a, uh, see in the next job or something like that. Right. I mean, where where does that mapping start to occur? Because I, I think we. Yeah, we, I'm, we, I'm glad you're bringing that up, because that was the other thing I wanted to get to is that atomization that Hassan was talking about. Like, yeah. how do you get everyone on the same page? as well or do you is that uh, what does it mean to have an organization where everybody isn't on the same page and you're are you moving forward so there's <laughs> now that we've asked you like a dozen questions well we're, framed, we're just framing no question just <laughs> yeah there's no question here at all we're just this you know kind of pulling it back yeah what 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 is so with all that that sort of thinking what is what is what is storytelling and how is it meaningful for an organization leader um in today's world basically so I will go back to some of the questions and one of them being, you know, what's the role of the leader? And I am a no nonsense, you know, coach. So I don't, I really struggle with some of the um, latest ideas in, in leadership in particular and, and articles that I read and, you know, books that are being published. And in fact, I was just sitting on a, on a call with Dave Snowden yesterday and, and he goes, Oh really? Yeah. And I'm and envious. Goes, well, Oh, it's a, anyway, I'll tell you more about it. But, but at one point he goes, um, I, I can't stand this. Uh, you know, like people go and, and interview 15 leaders and then they write a book about it as if that meant anything. I'm paraphrasing. And, and I, I couldn't agree more because uh, the idea, again, goes back to this hunger for that one story, one way to be a leader. And there are these, I, I looked at the numbers and it's, you know, I think 75,000 books on leadership that Amazon oh, yeah. has. And, and it's like, and yet we're not getting better. Um, not really. Um, not on that scale, 75,000 you know, percent better. And so the idea that, you know, you are going to to discover how to be a good leader by reading a book is not necessarily uh, that's not that's not going to happen. What I do agree with is what you said, Dan, and what what Heysan was saying as well is this introspection, like you actually have to figure out who you are before you can even, you know, we can, before you can lead anybody. You have to mm -hmm. understand your own story, your own narrative, how you can be helpful. What is it that you are, are bringing and discovering? And that needs to combine always with curiosity. The other question you had, Dan, and was, 
sort of the what is the level of storytelling that the leader should bring to the to the company to the organization versus you know like what is the level and i will say i think that the the leader's role is to bring that curiosity and engage with the people in the organization because mm-hmm. people have answers they do want to and you know they do have their ideas about the the story and and it should be a collaborative process you can't just show up and be like this is what we're doing yep. and this is the company we are and if you don't like it see ya which you know i think that it needs to be collaborative and once mm-hmm. the, the people and sort of like get in that understanding of what we're doing then you can be and if this is not a place for you then you can go somewhere else but it needs to be you know i'm not saying everybody has to agree everybody has to be on the same page <clears throat> but most people need to be somewhat moving in the same space on a time space continuum you know they have to be in the same spot and again i think last time i was here we were talking about sort of what is a culture and the storytelling is a part of the culture so you know it's it's an integral part of the culture and i always say you know you can have as many posters on the wall and you can have as many bean bags and many <laughs> tables as you want but if you keep promoting toxic people and or if you're promoting like whoever gets promoted is the first thing people people look at right so one of the questions we discussed earlier was is is gossip part of the storytelling is you know what kind of narrative goes around the the water cooler and the answer is most people sense you know something from your organization the moment they walk in right the energy is there or it's not and that yeah. goes back to the embodiment but also i'm looking say, yeah. who's being promoted and if if the person who's being promoted is a you know underperformer who just fits certain narrative and this is getting very you know like are you promoting me because i'm a woman like is is the only reason i'm being promoted that you know i have certain you know lady business that you don't have and you want to do that that's why then i don't want to be here and or people have every right to be upset because that's not you know is it color of my skin is it my ethnic background why are you promoting me is it is it what i'm bringing to the table so there are tacit stories and then there are implicit stories that leadership is probably very often not very much aware of that they're that they're transmitting through their behavior and it really is the behavior that matters like the stories are nice and and fine for the hr people and the writers of these you know and and designers of these posters but ultimately it's the action i i think it goes back to what hayson was talking about and i think that's the role of the leader to make sure that you are listening you are curious you ask questions and understand sort of where your people are and work with it like people want some guidance but they also want to to express who who they are where they are and what the what the organization they want yeah yeah it it sounds like the leaders discovering the story and co-constructing it with the the organization the people within the organization hence sense making yeah 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 for well, sure well i would also add to this and we always forget this in when we kind of have this conversation and i i agree with everything that hana has said um we for we for yeah, I like I, that. I, that's why i pause at the end there it's a good story it's a good story it's a feel good story of the year um, <laughs> lifetime story it's a lifetime story that's um, right. i think that we have to teach people or not teach people we have to engage with people around following as well so i think that's a, that's the other half of this equation that almost never gets talked about we have an almost, and I'm a person who wrote a leadership book. Forgive me, Hana. I wrote a leadership book last year. Uh, please forgive me. <laughs> mea culpa, mea culpa. We forgave mea him. Mea we forgave him last time. Uh, you can pick it up on Amazon. <laughs> 75,001. 
I've written written some articles on leadership, Um, (laughs) including, including incidentally, I just want to get this in on construct proliferation, which is what you're kind of getting at, Hana, which is the concept that there have been over, there have been proposed in the academic literature, over a hundred different theories of leadership, you know, and they all are mirror each other and overlap and it becomes terrible for a leadership researcher because what variables are you trying to measure? But I just want to get out that out there. No, go, no, go no. On, hey, son, I'm go sorry. ahead, Hannah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm going to interrupt you and say, I'm a, I, I read all these books. I'm one of the idiots who actually go and buys those books and kind of look at them and talk, you know, follows people because I'm interested in figuring out if they have something to say. And some of them are wonderful, you know, and, and right. we wouldn't have the, uh, the complexity uh, scheme, and we wouldn't have a lot of great, you know, things if it wasn't for people who actually can write a book, like mm-hmm. like you, Hesa. So it's 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 not it's not all leadership, you know, business. It's a whole industry. It's not all bad. I'm just saying well, there's a tendency simplify. Yes, and this much. is why you know the tagline on my podcast is because listening and because reading and trying to understand literature is better than reading and trying to understand yet another business book, right? Um, you know, especially one that I wrote. Um, <laughs> so um, so we've got that dynamic, but I think I think that there's two things that need to be hooked into hooked into what Hannah said. The first thing that needs to be hooked in is this concept of followership, right? Uh, how do you be a good follower? We really push back and struggle with that in America because the cultural narrative, the cultural story of America is everyone can lead all the time. And if everyone's not leading all the time, someone's slacking. Okay. And by the way, that's been the dominant cultural narrative for probably since the founding of the country. Uh, it's, it's in the DNA of Americans. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast uh, episode in another country, your DNA will vary, right? You're going to have a different kind of cultural story around leadership. The other thing, and, and well, let me, let me close off that. So with that, we don't have a whole lot of good books written on how to be a good follower. How do you check your leader? Uh, we don't have a lot of good books that ask that ask and answer that question. How do you challenge leadership effectively and respectfully while also keeping your job? Um, how do you uh, make sure that toxic people, which uh, Hannah was talking about this, how do you make sure that toxic people don't drag you down and don't get promoted? Um, how do you make sure that the organizational culture is one you actually want to show up to and work in every day? And by the way, would be remarkable in the Seth Godin sense of the word, meaning worth talking about to somebody else when you get home, not something that you just take off and put down and then pass out on the couch watching a Netflix show. Okay. (laughs) How do you ensure that when you show up to work, it's not the leader's entire responsibility to make sure that you're showing up with your whole self, but that you are contributing to the environment that allows your whole self to be there. Remember that whole co-creation thing? Mm. Co-creation requires two people. Mm. It requires a leader and a follower. But we focus almost at an idolatrous level on the leader, and we say absolutely nothing about the followers. That's interesting. It's like, I'm saying that joke. What, um, uh, that's enough about me. Let's talk about right. you. What do you think of me? <laughs> what does all this mean to a leader? And, and as Dan knows, I, for me, the concept, and I think we're kind of just, we're kind of actually breaking that down here. The notion of leader for me is not what it's been, ta- what we've been talking about for the past hundred years, right? It is something else in this world of, of hyper connectivity and the ability for us to connect on levels that we haven't in the past, both because of, enlightenment of the world around us and partially also because of all the technologies. But my question is, because Hayson, you kind of touched on it. So what does storytelling mean for me? What am I looking for from a story in relationship to the narrative that I have as a follower? And I'm going to use that word, a followership in a company. What, 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 what does narration, what does a story, what, what are the implications of a story for me? What should I be looking for as a, as a person who is a follower in an organization? I think that if you are a follower in an organization, um, you need to be very clear about a couple of things. One, where you're coming from. Um, you remember that whole finding out where your convictions things are? Yeah. You got to do the deep dive yourself the same way the leader does. But then the second thing you want to be looking for, and this I want to make this very, very clean as I possibly can. You want to be looking for the practical, walked out behavior of leadership. 
And if those two things aren't, and we've visited this word over and over again, if the narrative and the walked out behavior are not aligned, if there's mismatch and friction, you need to make a, you need to have a serious conversation with yourself and with the people around you who you love about whether or not it is time for you to move into another role or move to another organization where the match is cleaner. Is that always possible for everybody economically? No, it's not. That's why you need to have that conversation. Is this always practical for an individual inside of an industry? No, it's not, which is why you need to have that conversation. Is it going to be easy? No, it's not. Congratulations. The worthwhile things are the hard things. Welcome to humanity, right? But you're going to have to have that conversation. Make sure that alignment is occurring. Because here's the thing, if you don't make sure that alignment happens at a very practical level, you're going to wake up in, name your number of double-digit years here, wondering who you are with an ulcer and potentially an addiction. And by the way, you could be addicted to all kinds of things. It's not just the typical things that we think of. You could be addicted to anger. You could be addicted to um, uh, uh, stress. You could be addicted to work. <laughs> you could be addicted to yelling at your kids. You could be addicted to scrolling on doom scrolling on social media uh, or whatever we'll call it in 10 years. <laughs> you could be addicted to uh, <laughs> dumping all kinds of things in chat GPT four or whatever we'll be up to in 10 years and getting back some answers or whatever the hot new thing will be. You could be addicted to turning off in the metaverse, whatever it is you would like, pick your addiction and don't worry, we'll find new things. That's your alternative option. And I want to close um, on that with what I said at the beginning. You're just going to reinforce your stranger in a strange land story if you don't get practical, if you don't seek that alignment, and if you don't have those conversations with people that you love. So that's a, that's my practical application uh, for, uh, for today. 